The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. You're very welcome back to The Hard Shoulder. Kieran Cuddy with you until seven o'clock, and I am delighted to be joined for the Thursday interview this week by Dr. Mary Cassidy, former state pathologist and somebody who is appearing this coming Saturday, October 15th, in the Civic Theatre in Tata as part of the Red Line Festival. Brought to you by South Dublin Libraries and Arts. And she is there alongside lots of other great guests, including uh, on the crime front, uh, Paul Williams, uh, the journalist and the writer and regular contributors to this show. And Pat Murray, the private investigator as well, in what the festival organisers uh, bill as an intriguing insight into true crime. Mary, you're very, very welcome uh, to the hard shoulder and it is great to talk to you. Um, I mean, is, is this the type of stuff that is keeping you busy in retirement? Oh, thanks for inviting me on, Kian. Um Yeah, it, uh, it seems to be that I've gone from doing it now to talking about it, um, which is a lot easier. <laughs> it's, a lot, it's a lot easier than, than rocking around mortuaries just to, to turn up and talk to nice people like yourself. And do you enjoy it, uh, the, the talking about it? Oh, I do. I do. <laughs> I do, unfortunately, I do. Um, I just, I've always found um, crime whether it's true crime or even the fictional stuff, fascinating. And so I just love to talk about it. Um, so I'm quite happy for somebody to come along and ask me to, to have a word with them. So there's never any problem with that t- at all. Does it ever make you miss the actual job? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I've done the hard work. I've been there, seen it, done it. T-shirt, got the video, got everything. Uh, no, I'll leave that to the young ones now. No, I'm I'm too old now to be to be doing that for the rest of my life. You, you mentioned kind of uh, true crime, fictional crime. You you love it all. I mean, were you someone then who, when you came home from these awful incidents and doing your work, that you you would what pick up a novel and read about crime? I find that hard to believe. Yeah, I did. I, I did, unfortunately. Um, and I still do, and I still read all the the crime novels, and uh, and it's fascinating. And and going to these, you know, things like this festival, it's amazing because you get to to see the people who are writing these books. You get to meet the authors, and it's fascinating to get an insight into why they're interested in it and and how they see it. And I, I, I mean, I, I just find it amazing just to, to have the opportunity to to be able to to see these people and speak to these people. What, what, well, then, maybe you can answer that great question. Why are people so fascinated with it? I think it's probably, it's a bit of fantasy for people, really, because it's so far removed from their normal lives. It's things that you read about, and even the true crime, you read about it in newspapers. It doesn't really touch people. Um, and so you're like a voyeur, you, 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 you can look at it from a distance. And I think people just are endlessly fascinated, particularly women, strangely enough. And that's mm. why even today, coming back to, to, to real crime, true crime, you know, there's so many women coming into forensics nowadays because they just seem to um, have an aptitude for working in that area. It says something as well, doesn't it, about, I don't know, the human condition sounds a little uh, too pompous a phrase to use, but it says something about us, that uh, the fascination as well is, is more often with, the, it's the perpetrator as well, isn't it, that we're, we're, we're most fascinated by? Yeah, because we can't really understand why people would do such bad things. Mm. And, and during my working life, I was never 
allowed to explore that side of it because um, I was involved in dealing with the victims of crime and my whole concentration was on them and their families. Um, and so I didn't want anything to cloud my judgment by thinking about who did it and why they did it. And I left that to the other people, the other people that were involved in the investigations. Um, that wasn't what I was there to do. And so I always shied away from that side of things. And even going to court, um, I would sometimes look at the person who was standing accused and think, good Lord, you know, you, you would hardly, it doesn't look as if you would say boo to a goose. And yet I've seen what has happened. Um, and it's only now that I, I must, you know, I've taken a step back from that. I can actually, like yourselves, is think about why do these people do that? You know, what kind of a person would do that? And I'm now finding that side of it as fascinating as I did when I was working and in, in actually in the business. And do you think that we're all capable of that now that you've thought about it more? Unfortunately, I do. I think if somebody's pushed to the limits, that you don't know how they're going to react. And that's how I often think about, you know, people talk about, you know, people who are inherently bad, people who are insane. Good people can be driven to do bad things. Um, you know, uh, and coming back to going to court and you, you look at some of these people who are standing accused and they look about as bewildered as everybody else because I think, how, how did I get here? I went out for a drink on a Saturday night and the next thing I know, there's somebody dead and I did something awful. They, they didn't go out with an intention to do anything and things just happen. Bad things happen. And does that then, the acceptance of that reality, does that lend you a certain sympathy for those perpetrators? I don't know if this has sympathy, um, but I can sometimes understand how it how it how they got there and how it happened. Um, and again, because it's nothing to do with me and it's not me that's making the decision what happens to them, I'm allowed to do that now. But um, yeah, it's... Um, I can just, you know, I, I can actually see things. It's like those, I always talk about when you these, these television programs where people send in their videos of doing stupid things and we're all as viewers watching it going, of course that's going to break. How on earth do you not see that? And I think when I hear some of the stories about what had happened on a particular night or a particular day, I say, you know, I think you can see how this is going to go badly wrong. Why didn't they see that when they were there? Why didn't they realise where this was heading for? And But hindsight's a wonderful thing. Mm. Uh, th th that um, distinction you drew between your role and, say, and the role of investigators, that you, you were kind of very much um, dealing with the, the, the victim or the, the, what was yeah. left of the victim. Um, you know, and, and, and it might have been only in court when you got there that you might have seen the, the, the accused for the first time. Um, do you think that distinction was blurred sometimes in the minds of the public, that you were just kind of somebody who people generally associated with these awful crimes? And I, I don't know, did it ever happen that people would ask you about Joe O'Reilly, for example, or something, you know, rather than, yeah. rather than yeah. Rachel O'Reilly, whose body you actually would have dealt with? Yeah, and that's the sad thing is because, you know, um, a lot of these murders, we, we forget about the victim and we, we're, we're all talking about, you know, who, who did it. Um, but people did. People get confused about what the role was. And when I wrote my book, 
and back to my memoirs, that was the reason why I did it, because I, I want people to know that it's not just me. <laughs> There's a whole team of people who are involved and we all have our own little different areas of expertise. My area of expertise is forensic pathology, finding out how somebody died. But I don't do any of the forensic science stuff and I don't know anything about it. I don't do forensic psychology or forensic psychiatry. There are people who specifically do deal with those side of things and deal with the perpetrators. So I just, you know, I'm confined to the deceased person and what happened to them. And I assume that given like the the the, the professional way you would have approached your job, and, and that's quite clear in the memoir as well, and lots of people would have read it when it came out a few years ago, um, that you, you can kind of turn off that part of your brain that was, you know, fascinated with the kind of with crime and criminology and the investigation of crime when you got to a scene. You knew you knew what your role was. We're scientists, basically. And therefore, that's that's how we approach things. And as soon as I'm getting involved, as soon as I get a phone call, as soon as I got a phone call about something, you immediately switch into that role and you're thinking about, right, what am I going to be going to? What am I going to see? What do I need to do? What am I going to be looking for? Um, what they, What's people going to want from me? So you immediately just fall into that. But then as, as just as easily, when you walk away from it, you can just switch it back off. Can I ask you a question, Mary, that I, I'd reveal something there. My granddad was a pathologist and uh, I'm going to ask you a question that I actually should have asked him when he was alive. What made you want to do it? When you were studying medicine and all the talk is of curing people of illness or disease or diagnosis of illness or disease, what made you want to do pathology? Well, I think I was a very naive 16-year-old when I started in medicine and I thought that I was going to cure people and then I think the, the hard reality came around and I saw that it didn't matter what you did. In some cases, people still died and people. And I just thought, no, I, I'm not really cut out for this at all. And so I had to think of somewhere, some some part of the of medicine where I could fit in. And I think that's... One of the one of the beauties of, of any youngsters embarking on a career in medicine is that, you know, people think about doctors and white coats and people think about your local GP. But there's just there's just so much in there. If you're very, very scientifically minded, you can go into research on all of these areas. And so I just looked around for something that um, wouldn't have me at the cold face, if you like, Um and so I found the laboratories and I found pathology and I just thought that was fascinating. Mm. And then I found the forensic pathology and I just thought, wow, this is this is really interesting. And but, uh, I never looked back from that moment on. So it was a kind of a step by step. I never set out to end up in a mortuary, but that's what happened. That it's That's kind of fascinating, though. So when, when you say that you know, you realise that like there was people for whom you could do nothing ultimately um, and that, that you found that difficult. I mean, was it that, like kind of emotionally you found that difficult? That you'd kind of, that you'd have this living person in front of you for whom you couldn't help? Yeah, I, I couldn't cope with that emotion. Um, and I think that's that's very telling in what I, what I did mm. when, I, when I was in forensic pathology because the all of the pain and suffering has gone. And I, you know, as a pathologist, you're not dealing with having to deal with that. And I just found it 
quite traumatic, um, particularly when you were dealing with people who were very, very ill. And and then you'd come back the next morning and there was an empty bed and I would go, what happened? You know, and and I just thought, no, no, I can't, I can't cope with this. I, you know, I'm no use to people. Um, if I'm weeping in the corner every time somebody takes a bad turn, so that so you have to be able to, as I say, distance yourself from that. And I distance myself by going to the other end, to the other extreme, and just dealing with the the deceased persons. That it is fascinating because when you say the kind of the pain and the suffering has disappeared, I guess it hasn't really disappeared. It's transferred to family. Um, yes in in the, the the case of the deceased but then you're not dealing with the family you're not, certainly not dealing with them in the initial stages when you're kind of you know in the, the the bread and butter of your work as it was that's very true and that that and that means that you can deal with things professionally um and it's only usually it's us- only usually when i get to court or to an inquest that i actually get an opportunity to see the family and speak to the family. And then you can just see the effect that this has had on the family and that. And But then I can allow myself to feel empathy, to feel sympathy at that stage because I've done my work and it stands there and it's, it's there and it's not going to be altered by that, by my emotions. But I can then feel for these people and, that, and sometimes you just look at them and see you know, fractured families and, you know, the, the devastation that can be caused by a death. It's just, oh, it's incredible. I mean, it's easy to compartmentalise when you're in the lab, you know, because it's such a sterile environment. But when you're out at the scene, I mean, are there ever points that the, the guy, those barriers that you build up, those psychological barriers, that they break down a little when, when you have seen the scene and you have seen someone's family home and you've seen the pictures on the wall, that maybe then it's, it's a little harder in some cases. I don't know, maybe it's not. Uh, to, to, to separate out the reality of death that's happening elsewhere. It's going to make me sound very hard, but no, I can I can just you know shut myself off from that, mm. and you have to be able to. I mean, but if you're if you're going to a scene, you're you're perhaps seeing a little bit of this person's life, but I don't know them. I've never met them. I've never spoken to them. I don't know the family. I don't know their standing in the community. I don't know, you know, if they go to mass every Sunday. I don't know anything about them at all at that stage. Mm. And therefore, it's easy for me just to be quite dispassionate at that stage and not get involved in thinking about this person. Um, I'm busy thinking about, right, I've got a, I've got a job to do. Um, people need to know what happened to this person, how they died. And is there anything else I can tell them that will help their investigation? And I just, you know, that's that's what I'm there to do, and that's what I'm going to do. And you were you did you did that for what four, fourteen years as a state pathologist and deputy state pathologist before that. How, how did you find the kind of the the fame, if that's the right word, <laughs> that, that that went with the job in Ireland? Um, I find it peculiar um, I, because having. Worked in forensic pathology in, in Scotland for about 13, 14 years before I came over here. Um, I, nobody knew who we were. Nobody cared who we were. Um, that probably tells you a lot about the, the Scottish psyche. We don't really care too much about anything. Um, and so the 
I had known from Jack Harbison. He'd always told me, everybody knows who I am. And we used to humor him and say, I'm sure they do, Jack. I'm sure everybody knows who you are. Um, but only when I came over here and realized that the scrutiny that you're under, um, I found it quite bizarre. And then you just get to the stage where you just have to just forget about it. And again, it's just a, it's just a noise in the background and you just have to just get on and do what you're what you're there to do. So um, I found it quite odd sometimes because I always forget. And then you'd some you'd be in the supermarket, somebody would come up and say, oh, hello, you married Cassidy. Did you? And I think, oh, good God, I'm not even doing my, my, my shopping in peace. Um, so it was, as I say, bizarre and, and fairly intrusive at times. And it's um, sometimes you just wish that, you know, people didn't know who you were. And what was the most common question they asked in the supermarket when they realised who you were? Um, it would depend on what was happening at that particular time. But that, they would always get round to say, always they ask, what's the worst thing you've ever seen? And I thought, you don't really want to know what's the worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> you couldn't even, you, you, you could, you know, dream it up in your, your psyche. Um, so I usually you just go, oh, well, I don't know. I've seen lots of awful things and just think, just keep, keep moving the trolley along. Keep your trolley moving. Oh God, I better scratch off the last question I was going to ask you there, Mary. Uh, listen, um, <laughs> It, 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 it's, it's been an absolute pleasure and as I said right at the outset uh, I know that you are speaking on Saturday uh, that's this coming Saturday the 15th in the Civic Theatre right. um, in South Dublin South Dublin Libraries and Arts their festival the Red Line Festival uh, Mary is appearing at it and I mentioned some of the others Paul Williams and Pat Mary and uh, there's other conversations happening Louise O'Neill Michael Harding Donald Ryan and others so listen the Red Line Festival if you Google it you'll find out all of the details there Dr Mary Cassidy an absolute pleasure thank you very much Thank you Kian. goodbye that's our lot for the hard shoulder today. Off the ball, as always, they're up next. My thanks to the production team. I will be back tomorrow at four. Have a good evening, folks. The hard shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan weekdays from four on News Talk.